All right, this morning, Paul, uh, not the Apostle Paul, but our Sunnybrook Paul, is going to be uh, preaching about Paul in Acts um, chapter 21. So I'm going to be reading Acts 21, uh, 15 through 26. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they, that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the, offer, and the offering presented for each one of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Brady, for the text tonight. Thanks for the clarity that I am not the Apostle Paul, in case you were wondering about that. Um, some truth to that is that my dad's a pastor, and I was named after the Apostle Paul. Tried to live up to that in a lot of occasions, um, but failed a lot in that. But uh, we're glad that you're here, and we are going to look at the Apostle Paul like we've been doing the whole time through the book of Acts. So if, if you need to find the Bible spot in case we lose this, uh, it's Acts 21. We're going to be there. We're going to spend a lot of time there. i got some other scriptures. Hopefully they'll show up. If they don't, pay attention to the word of the Lord. That's the most important thing I'm going to say today is the word of God. Um, I'm not sure if any of you guys remember, I don't know if they still do this, I'm kind of removed from elementary school, having kids in elementary, but when I was in elementary, back in the day, early 1900s, when I was in elementary school, um, we'd have a day where <clears throat> they, would, they would do these silhouette portraits, anybody remember these? Do they still do these? You kids, have you had your portraits done by silhouette? You have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> So what they did is they would, they would have some kind of a light and there would be a shadow and there would be the silhouette of your face and then somehow they would draw it and cut it out and have this nice little portrait that you could take home. And I, I thought that was always amazing uh, because when you looked at it, when I looked at it, I went, hey, that actually looks like me. In second grade, it looked like my nose and my lips and looked like my hair, even though my hair was incredibly blonde with a little bit of a top here and it showed that on the screen in the shadow and so I had the silhouette portrait you know that outlined me and it was actually me and it was kind of interesting because people could recognize that that was me and I could recognize some of my classmates the same way it was recognizable and you could even recognize some of my classmates but at the end in the end it's just a silhouette right it's not really me it's not really you it's just a silhouette a, a shadow 
That's how shadows are, aren't they? They they represent an outline of something of substance, but it's just shadows. Colossians 2, Paul writes, and and he warns the people, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition and not according to Christ. Later on, he begins to, to summarize what this looks like. And in Colossians 2, he continues in the passage to remind the readers of their baptism, which they were buried uh, and were raised with Christ through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. God made us alive and has forgiven us, and he's canceled our debts. And he sums up this section in verses 16 and 17 by saying this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or regard with festivals or new moon Sabbaths. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So as you heard that text, or maybe you've been reading the text uh, this week before the sermon, in Acts 21, you can't help but remind you of what happened eight years ago. It sounds very familiar. Acts chapter 15, there is a story where they gather. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And you hear some of the same kind of wording in both of these texts. It, uh, what happened eight years ago was right after the first missionary journey. And so it was Paul and Barnabas at the time. They had made their uh, ways around southern uh, Galatia in Asia Minor. And they would come back. And at that time, there were some Judaizers, some Jews who were antichrist, if you will, didn't, didn't believe that Christ was the Messiah, and they began to stir up, especially among the Gentiles who were coming to faith, and says, well, if you're really going to follow God, then you need to be circumcised. And, and so that was what was being spread in that moment, and Paul and Barnabas had a conflict with that, and that led to them having a gathering in Jerusalem among the church there, <coughs> a guy by the name of James, who is called James the Just, or James the Less sometimes. Um, he was actually the uh, brother, stepbrother, if you will, of Jesus. And he led the church in Jerusalem, and he was there among the elders. And, and so in Acts 15, they made some decisions, and there they decided this, not to add burdens to the new Gentile Christians who were coming to faith. Because it is apparent by what Paul has described and Barnabas has described uh, to everyone that the Gentiles who put their faith in Christ had received the Holy Spirit and great things were happening in them. And so in those next eight years, Paul has that as a backdrop. And then eight years later, he shows up back in Jerusalem. So what has happened in that span of time? You know, I know last week Scott used a laser pointer and pointed out uh, a map of Asia Minor and the Mediterranean Sea and, and all of those things. And I love that. Uh, I got in the service too late to see him in action with that. But I love those because I love maps. But I also love timelines. And, and it's fun for me to chart, especially in Acts, the, the dates that scholars have come up with for the, the times when all of the things in the Acts of the Holy Spirit and Paul through uh, the book of Acts are happening. And in that eight-year span, say, you know, this is a given example, 59 AD to 67, somewhere in like that might be a good way to look at those time frames there or excuse me, 49 to 57, those eight years, a lot of things were happening. Obviously, in those eight years from chapter 15 to where we find ourselves now is that there's been two journeys that Paul has taken to establish the church that is spreading, not only now in Asia Minor, but now in Macedonia and places like Philippi and Thessalonica, on to Corinth and Athens. 
and then later will even go to Rome. And so those are some of the things that are happening in that timeline. But it's not only that. Paul doesn't, even, doesn't just tell us as he does in Acts about the, the situations and the circumstances and the people he's met with and the people who are coming to faith and the people that are opposing him. He also begins to write many of his letters during this time. And so I think it's really important for us to understand that in this season, post the Jerusalem Council, that he is writing to the churches of Galatia. He gives us Galatians. He also wrote to the church in Corinthians. There's actually four letters that most believe. We have two of those. He even writes to the Romans who he hadn't even met officially yet. And I believe that he wrote with the experience of what had transpired in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council. I think that is a backdrop, and then dealing with the people and the situations and other Jews and other places of the world, there was a lot of uh, confusion and understanding about this whole following Christ and what we do with the law of Moses. And so he spoke in that time. Listen to some of the verses out of Galatians and Romans I want to read to you that just can give you a hint to what I'm talking about. Galatians 2, verse 16. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also believe in Christ Jesus, and not by works of the law, but by works, uh, by, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In Romans 3, it tells us this, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles, Gentiles also, since God is the one who will justify the circumcised through faith. And then later in Romans 7, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Jesus Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear, bear fruit for God. And then finally, Romans 10, <clears throat> Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Seems apparent to me that what Paul uh, and the council dealt with in Acts 15 was, was a theme that carried throughout Paul's ministry, if you will. And this whole idea that Christ is the end of the law and being both its fulfillment and its termination is true. And any salvation or any system of salvation based on performance is excluded. Law serves a purpose. It gives us a practice of how to follow God. But it is in itself a shadow. And shadows point to the substance. And the substance is Jesus Christ. You see, for eight years, Paul wrote to churches, and he visited and he established new churches, and he spent many years with some of these churches, like in Ephesus and Corinth, sharing and persuading and seeing that God was doing a work there, and more were coming to the faith and were being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then he preached to those, and then the law is as a shadow, ultimately pointed to the substance of Jesus who fulfilled that law. Things like this that were said, we can now approach the throne of grace because of Jesus giving us access. No need for priests and offerings. No sacrifice of goats and bulls needed for Christ died once and for all, for all sin. 
But you see, today's text still seems to cast a shadow. And I want to talk a little bit about shadows. I, I think that in this idea, obviously the shadow is the law here, but I'm going to take some uh, license here with this. I, I think that shadows, i.e., can cloud clarity. They can cloud clarity. Let me, let me give you an idea. Are you ever frustrated? I'm speaking to the believers in the room, a follower of Jesus. Are you ever frustrated with yourself? And this is what I mean. You, you know that you gave your life to Jesus. You accepted his incredible grace by putting your trust in him. You submitted to the waters of baptism, identifying with Christ in, in your death to sin and resurrection to life. And then, because of, you know, your life now, you feel distant. Um, your, your point of salvation and the shadows that follow distort and they kind of cloud your judgment and you lack clarity. You know, things like just, just disobedience. Disobedience to, to Christ and what he's called us to be and, and not representing him as well as I should. And, and that looks like shadows. And they follow us. And so shadows can cloud the clarity and the truth that what God has told us. You know what Christ has done for you, and you know your identity is defined by uh, his work in your life, but recent choices seem to be pointing to you as one who doesn't look like a child of God. Or, or let's just flip those circumstances a little bit. You, on the other hand, begin to see other people who say they follow God. And you witness their life uh, be, being given to Christ. And you, you remember the day that they walked forward and accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And, and you've been walking with them as a brother and sister. And, and you've seen them to begin half thoughts and God doing a work of sanctification in their life. And instead of seeking them out and meeting them in their brokenness, it's easier to have opinions and thoughts and questions about what they're doing. And so we begin to chase Shadows that can cloud clarity. And then I think a lead to chasing shadows that allow rumors to hold truth and to carry weight. See, rumors begin to carry a weight with them. Now there's a rush to judgment on our response. And this is where we find ourselves in this week's text, to be honest. Turn with me to Acts 21 or look at it on the screens. I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. We're going to jump around through this text uh, and lead us to what I'm talking about. You see, shadows have the sense of um, holding some truth. But then we begin to realize that it's not the actual substance of the truth. Listen to verse 20, and this is kind of where I want to land. Right in the middle of it. It says, and when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, thus meaning James and the elders. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. That is great news. Thousands of Jews are coming to Christ. I think it's interesting. Jerusalem at this time is about the size, oh, 25,000 to 50,000 people. Sound similar to any place you know of? Thousands of Jews have come to Christ since since uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, thousands, and we know right earlier, three and then 5,000, and it tells us that even thousands 
a good majority of people that found their way into Jerusalem were following Jesus as Messiah. And so this is what's going on there. And then he says, they were zealous for the law, but listen to verse 21. And they had been told about you. That just caught me a couple weeks ago when I started reading this text. And they had been told about you. That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. You see, who are the they here? (laughs) They here are the Jewish Christians who have heard the message of the gospel. They are the ones who are hearing things, you know, things. Things that make you wonder just a little bit, start to cloud, confuse. Okay, I know Jesus came for this, but but we do have the law, and what they're saying makes sense, and, and shouldn't we be following these laws? And I'm a little bit confused, they're clouded. And then you say, but you're talking about Paul, and I know that. I heard Paul speak. Are you sure this is Paul that you're talking about? Are we talking about the same guy here? You begin to hear the rumors. Instead of dispelling the rumors, the rumors just continue to go. And the accusations about shadows are made. He's teaching Jews to forsake the Mosaic law. He's given up on Moses. Don't circumcise your children. Don't keep the customs. Hope you understand these these accusations were odious. They were false. The gospel Paul preached was according to Moses' testimony of Christ. Matthew 5. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you're familiar with Matthew 5. And the beginning of that chapter talks about this incredible statement of blessed are. Or maybe your Bible used to say happy are. Like these are... Memorize these in elementary school. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those. And it's like... We're supposed to be happy about those things when they happen? I don't quite get it. And then you kind of grow in your faith and you're going, okay, because we trust God and we trust God. And that, that whole section, verse, verse 11, ends that section with this. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You know, a lot of us can resonate with that because we live in a world that's not always following Jesus and so maybe you have a boss or, or a neighbor or somebody you go to school with or a coach or somewhere that doesn't follow Jesus, doesn't care about the things that God cares about and so you felt persecution by that. You have a coworker and they make fun of your faith and your Sundays and what you do with life groups and, and how you show up on Wednesdays and serve and all of these kinds of things and you kind of, I'm good with that, I mean, yeah, they're going to make fun of me. And, you know, when I'm the butt of a, a joke when we're sitting around trying to uh, entertain guests from out of town to make a sale or whatever. And you go, okay, I'm good with that. I'm cool. I'm, I'm okay with what's going on. And so that's our persecution, right? It's a very first world persecution, right? I don't have to tell you that around the world there are some serious uh, issues with those who are believed that are, that are dying for their faith. Not unlike what Paul is dealing with, with the early church. And so when I read this text that Jesus warns us and he tells us, you know, expect these kinds of things. He says, because great is your reward for the Father is in heaven. And so we take, we take hold of the hope we have in the promise. I think this is good. I can do this. I can, I can deal with the hostility of a world that doesn't like Jesus. I live in a nation that doesn't seem to be pointing towards Jesus anymore. I can deal with that. 
that I can still live by my faith. I can still uh, live out my faith in this world. But I think what I didn't expect was that maybe the ones that might persecute us and say all kinds of evil against us might be some we call brothers and sisters. They may attend this very same service that you are attending right now that have said things against you. It may be that we will gather and we will celebrate the loaf and the cup, which represents the body and blood of Jesus. And it's at this place that you feel the angst and, and the persecution and the evil that has been said about you by someone in this very room or, or even someone in our community who is a claimer of a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, I don't know if I expected that. I know I didn't early on. But that's the reality in which we find ourselves. How does one respond in a situation like that when others take shots? You know, I think one of the famous lines is like, the church is the only place where we shoot our wounded. I hate that that's a monochrome that the church carries. And what I hate about that is because there's a little truth to that. That this should be a place where people can come and be loved now hear me, not watering down the gospel, we'll get to that, but loved and met and confronted. You see, I think Paul responds three specific ways of how we can flow from this word that I want to give you today. I heard this word when I was in college and it has resonated with me ever since. And most of you know I went to a college to study to be in ministry, so it was a Bible college. And we had a campus pastor on the staff there at the time, a guy named Ron, Ron Carter, and he would preach on Wednesday nights to the uh, student body. And it was kind of fun. It was kind of like we had our own campus ministry. We had our own Scott and Drew uh, in, in our, amongst us. And so you got to meet with him, hang out. He was really fun. And, but when he preached, it was fire. And, you know, he was, he was he back in the day. And, and so I kind of enjoyed that. And uh, he preached. And I remember this one particular sermon. And he talked about being magnanimous. And that's the word. Uh, I don't know if you know what that means, but uh, maybe you have a general idea. Let me give you a little bit of uh, flesh to that. Magnanimous carries this idea of this. Generosity in forgiving an insult or injury. It's like you're generous when someone insults you, that you're, you're, you, you're generous, you heap on forgiveness in that moment. It's this freeing from the pettiness of things like resentfulness and vindictiveness. It's above the fray. I love the word that Timothy, in the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy about setting up elders and deacons and leaders, and he says that I need them to be, he uses the term above reproach. I think it's, it's that term with weight on it, right? Above reproach with weight, like be magnanimous, be above that. When someone is hurting you, you just kill them, that may be not the word I'm using, just flood them with generosity and love and forgiveness and not point back and shoot back. You see, it's an idea of being above reproach without weight. And so what are these ways that Paul shows us in the text how to be magnanimous? I think the first one is found in verses 19 and 20 of Acts 21. Paul gives glory for what God has done. How can we be magnanimous? We give glory to what God is 
doing. Look at verse 19. So after he came back, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. It's right there in the text. You know, I think Paul gets a bad rap sometimes. Maybe I'm defending my name now, but the Apostle Paul gets a bad rap. I mean, he's one of those guys that you either love him or you hate him, I think, a lot of times in the Christian world. Well, Paul, man, if he wasn't so abrupt, if he could be nicer, he just says things like he doesn't think through them. He should be nicer in what he says. And, and I, honestly, I tend to want to be that kind of person most of the time as I get older. Maybe not because I'm more mature, I just, I'm tired of just beating around the bush and just kind of say it what it is. I don't know if I'm doing it the correct way, but if you really do a, a, a gentle study of Paul and, and how he responds, when he's talking about God and what God's doing, he does not hold back. I mean, let me tell you what God is doing. You know, where we see things like, well, they wanted to make him a, a God. You know, he didn't, no, I'm not, no. I'm not going to be a God. That's not what we're here for. Matter of fact, if you look at the text, I believe he gets uh, stoned and kicked out of the city after that one, right? He is one who is pointing to God and giving God the glory for what God is doing. Last week, we learned that on every stop, Paul was warned here in this last section of what would happen to him in Jerusalem. And in light of this response, was to report to James and the church of Jerusalem what had been happening for the last two years. Can you imagine, you know, sitting there with Paul sharing with James and the elders there of the church and what God is doing and just, can I tell you what happened? You know, God, I thought I was supposed to go this way and then God said no and he gives me this call to go to Macedonia and I show up there and I go to Philippi and there's this lady named Lydia and then I head on down to Thessalonica and I spend some time in Athens waiting on the rest of our entourage and then in Corinth, man, talk about some crazy things. It's Vegas and, and I, God called me to stay there for a couple of years because he was doing some amazing things and then I, man, Ephesus, it was awesome what God was doing. People were coming, the spirit was moving and people were following God. I, I would have loved to have been in that room but since I'm not, he did give us about six chapters to tell us what was happening. And I love that he gave glory to God and the church leadership with him praised God. You know, whatever doubt still lingered in Jewish minds about the Gentile mission, it was guided and planned by God. And there was no question what was going on there. It was hard for people to talk bad about you when you give God the glory for everything. Amen. When you point to God and give him glory for what is happening in your life, in the life of this church, in the life of what God is doing in places like Japan or Poland or Mexico or on this campus through so many different ministries or, or college students who are stepping up and say, I'm living by my faith and what God is doing in those regards. And we give glory to God. It's going to be hard for people to talk bad about you when we point people back to Jesus. But you know the truth to that you're going to face some persecution. You're going to face some arrows. There's going to be somebody that has something to say against you, and it's not just the enemy. It's not just those who don't believe. It can be the very people you call brothers and sisters. And Paul, I believe, knowing full well what was going to happen in this situation, gave glory to God. But not only did he give glory to God, I think this is in the text he always lived out the truth. Look at verses 22 through 24. 
What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. So James and the elders have come up with a plan. They know that it's hostile. That they know that things are antsy around Jerusalem. They know that Paul is coming. They anticipate his coming. Do what we tell you. They have a plan. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. It sounds like that probably what's happening here is that we have a group of four men that have taken a vow, probably something like a Nazarite vow. What we know about that is, is a set aside to focus on God and his calling. They wouldn't shave their heads and they would drink no wine during that season. And it seems like in this situation, they were now finishing their vow. They would come back to the temple. They would be purified. They would have their heads shaved and that would cost. I said, Paul, if you would enter that time of purification with them, then maybe by this, it tells us, thus we'll know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Verse 26 tells us, then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be filled and the offering presented for each one of them. you got to love Paul. He came, he shared with what God was doing. He didn't come with an attitude, but he came for a respect and a submission to the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. And when they had come up with, let's do this, he submitted to that. He lived out the truth for the sake of the gospel in that moment. You see, the church leaders knew that all the reports being shared concerning Paul were false. The text tells us that. We know what we're hearing is false. What we're having a hard time with is trying to get everybody on the same page. I think a lot of times we come to the text and we go, well, why couldn't you do that? Couldn't you have some announcements before the first service and second service and just tell everybody, hey, I know you're hearing things about Paul. They're wrong. Those are flat out lies. Well, they didn't have church like this. They didn't have a big cathedral where thousands of Jews came together and worshiped like we worship on a Sunday morning. They met in houses and they met in various places and trying to get communication to all of them without also dealing with other people who were trying to stir the pot to get people to think differently about Paul was, was astronomical. And knowing that Paul was going to show up and he would be recognized, especially in the city and in the temple court, they realized we have to have a plan. You see, false teachers had spread rumors against what Moses, about what he said Moses was teaching about the huge throng of believers, thus stirring the people up. Yet Paul, this is what's amazing if you look at the text of Acts, throughout his ministry showed respect for the law and came to Jerusalem hoping to get there by Pentecost. I mean, he wanted to get there, to be there, to be a part of the Pentecost celebration. That means he was going to come and he was going to <clears throat> he himself have himself purified to partake in what this day stood for. He had observed various Jewish feasts and even had Timothy in Acts 16 circumcised for the sake of some Jews who were weak in their understanding in an earlier occasion. 1 Corinthians 9 tells it this way, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become like a Jew in order to win the Jews. And what he means like becoming like a Jew is to <coughs> speaking of being under the law. Why? For the sake of the gospel. And so he chose to always live out the truth. I think what's underlined in the text is that James and the elders had a suggestion. 
let's try this in hope that we can avoid the dissension and the division that might happen in the church here in Jerusalem. And they saw a way for them to stop those rumors. And maybe that if people saw you not only paying for these four to fulfill the rites of purification uh, in the temple, that they would somehow see that what we're hearing about Paul is untrue. And those shadows that creep up about obeying law and custom wouldn't override the substance of what Christ was doing in their midst. You see, by Paul paying their tribute and he himself walking through the purity aspect of entering the temple that week, maybe this would squelch those rumors and the Jews would see for themselves. And so Paul submitted, why? Because that's what you do for the sake of the gospel. Finally, I believe that Paul chose to be magnanimous by never compromising the truth of the gospel. Verse 25. Sound familiar to you maybe? But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. You see, eight years earlier, there was a decision that was made. And in the text here, eight years now in the future, the response by the leadership of the church according to the gospel, was the same response to the Gentiles. We're not backing out on this one. We're not going to ask Gentiles to start getting circumcised for the sake of the gospel. And the truth remained the same because the truth was not compromised. We're not going to continue to place a burden on the Gentiles that's not there in a misrepresentation of what the law stood for. You see, there were many disciples of Jesus in the early church who thought it quite possible and indeed eminently desirable to combine faith in Christ with the pursuit of righteousness through keeping the law. But Paul regarded this attitude as an impossible compromise. The age of law, which was never designed to be other than a parenthesis in God's dealing with mankind, has been superseded by the new age of Christ. I like how John Stott says it. We can only thank God for the generosity of spirit displayed by both James and Paul. That's kind of a funny statement if you read James much or if you've ever read Luther. Yeah, he's not a big James fan, but I love how Stott says the spirit that they displayed together. They were already agreed doctrinally that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, and ethically that Christians must obey the moral law. The issue between them concerned culture, ceremony, and tradition. And the solution to which they came was not a compromise of the gospel in the sense of sacrificing a doctrinal or moral principle, but a concession in the area of practice. So I ask you, where is God calling you to remain magnanimous? Above the fray. Maybe it's the church that has hurt you. Maybe it's a church that you thought was going to bring salve and healing, only brought shots in the back and you're disillusioned and maybe frustrated or maybe here just trying to give the church one more chance 
to be what you have always believed the bride of Christ should be. I ask that you would forgive those who have hurt you. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask we want to be a church that exemplifies the truth and upholds the truth. But maybe you are just in the struggle with just personal sin and and just the, the situation of, I know what I chose, but it seems so far away and and there's some shadows, and, and now I'm kind of doubting some decisions I made at Youthquake, maybe this year or last year or the year before, or some decisions I made um, when I got married and we gave our lives to Jesus at that moment, where it might be for you, maybe 5, 10, 50 years ago, that somehow you have allowed the law and the shadow over and supersede Jesus and his grace, and his mercy. Maybe you've forgotten what he calls you, that you're my child. And Maybe you need to repent well and receive. Maybe because of anger or other reasons, maybe you're the person that's like, I somehow feel like I have this entitlement to point the finger because I have the maturity. And maybe you need to repent say, Paul, or whoever you are, what do I need to do to show love and to reach out to someone who is hurting, who is rebellious for the sake of pointing them back to the truth of Jesus Christ? You see, Paul continued to glorify God and submit himself to God's leaders and never compromise the truth. May this be said of his church, his bride, today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for the Apostle Paul. I'm thankful for um, his diligence, his untiring effort, Father, that you provided for him, and Father, his witness to give you glory in all things. Father, we know Scripture hints at it, and and we realize that it was not always easy, but it was the right thing. Father, we need a clarity like that. Father, we need a desire to, to live above the fray that looks so real and so physical to us. And remember, God, what you are and what you've done and hold on to the substance of who you are. So God, help us to be magnanimous people, followers, who won't compromise the gospel, who will stand for the truth and bring glory to you. In your name we pray these things. Amen.